At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention, I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Our universe is filled with secrets and mysteries, leaving us with many questions to be answered. Now more than ever, we find ourselves searching for those answers as the very fabric of space, science, and society are converging. Here for the first time, these worlds collide as we give you the knowledge that breaks the barrier between what is science and what is merely pop culture. This is, this, this is Star Talk. Now, here's your hosts, astrophysicist Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson and comedian Lynn Koblitz. Star Talk. Star Talk. Star Talk. Star Talk. Star Talk. I'm your host, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, and with me in studio is professional comedian Lynn Complex. Lynn, how are you? Hi, Neil. I'm great now that I'm here with you. Oh, how are you? That's sweet. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> do you know what the, this show is about? Um, yes, I do. It's about telescopes, isn't it? It's about telescopes and how they have changed our understanding of our place in the universe. Where are you in your universe? I'm at the center, of course. <laughs> that was a setup. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out, of course, that we, everyone else thought they were in the center of the known universe, too, before, before Galileo first turned a telescope to the night sky, and that was 400 years ago, this year. So this is the 400th ago. anniversary it, of the telescope. It's the 400th anniversary, and telescopes rocked the world. They've changed our perception of, of, of where we are in the planet, correct? <laughs> and not only on the planet, but in the cosmos itself. People thought that just looking up would give you all the information you needed to know to understand our relationship to the cosmos, and that was just not the case. Because if all you do is look up, you will think you're in the center 
of the known universe <laughs> because everything revolves around you. So we, now tell me, today on the show, because I'm very excited about the show, we're, we're going to talk about Galileo, but we're going to talk about the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble was just fixed. We, we, we got a call lined up with one of the uh, shuttle astronauts who's responsible for, for building the tools that fix the Hubble. We, we got a lot of stuff lined up for the show, but it's all a survey of what telescopes have done for us and to us. And and how we how we realize that we are no longer the center of the universe. <laughs> we're, not, we're not only this, not the center of the universe. We're not the, the biggest part of it, or the small. We or are the just, only universe. <laughs> yeah, there might not even be. We might not even be the only universe out there. Telescopes will help us look for life elsewhere in the cosmos. And so what they what the telescopes have done is, however big your ego was at the beginning of the day, it has made your ego a little less by the end of the day. That's what telescopes have done. This is terrific. So we're gonna and we're gonna find out how they were uh, invented and indeed. And by the way, did you know that the international community of astrophysicists have gotten together and declared this year the International Year of Astronomy? And the goal is to get everybody in the world to look through a telescope at least once. I love that, and I love when you ask me, "Did I know?" Because you know I didn't. <laughs> well, maybe you did. I mean, you <laughs> I mean, know. Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, you know stuff that surprises me every show. So Neil, I, you yeah. said a, show, a word the other day that I broke down, and I still couldn't understand what the word was. Well, what was the word? I don't remember it. Well, you then why even... Re- well, Mata yada yada kataology something. Yeah, I have no idea what that word was. <laughs> well, keep, keep me honest and make sure all the words that I use are understandable to the cosmos. We have a lot of interesting people on the show today, too, don't we? Yes, we do. In fact, uh, I think we're going to soon get uh, Bill Nye on the line. Bill Nye's an old friend of mine. <laughs> He's a manic man. He is an exciting manic man. Well, I think he just has his coffee every day. That's all, that's all it takes. <laughs> he's just this bright science man with that is just so I, I love him. Yeah, yeah. He's got energy to energy to just share with the rest of the world. And so he's thought a little bit about telescopes and uh, he's he gets uh, ranty every now and then. And I always want to make sure I get him to share some of his rant with us on Star Talk. Yeah, as a New Yorker, what I like about Bill Nye is he's nice and quick. He's got a nice and he gets to the point <laughs> fast. He doesn't just drag on. No, he's, he does it. When, what, what are we calling it? A manic minute? Yeah, he has a nice manic minute. Let's see what Bill Nye's got to tell us in his manic minute. Hey, Bill Nye, the science guy here. Last week, NASA sent some people up to the Hubble Space Telescope to fix it. And they did. The Space Telescope is better than ever. It will make discoveries that we can't even imagine. This is what telescopes do. Galileo Galilei was the first guy to take his military telescope designed for looking at bad guys on the other side of the battlefield and he turned it up into the sky and he looked at the moon and instead of it being this perfect carved dinner plate, it's this mess, this jumble of chopped up Swiss cheesy rock and that discovery changed the world. The universe is not perfect in the way that people first imagined it. it instead, it's, it's much more complex. Now, there are many more telescopes being built right now, the Spitzer, the Webb, and these things are going to make discoveries that our ancestors couldn't even imagine. I got to fly, Bill Nye the science guy. There he goes. <laughs> I love him. I don't know if he took a breath that entire minute. That was... Did you know, Lynn, about the telescope? It was first used as a military device. Well, you know what you were telling me before the show I found so interesting is that the, uh, the guy who actually invented it, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Hans Lipperhey. Hans Lipperhey was a Dutch spectacle maker, and a few years before Galileo, 
used it to look at the night sky, he was up there fiddling with lenses that people had used just to read better. But he was using them, but he was using, Hans created it for battle, so you could see people no, no like one across knew, a field or whatever. No one thought fully about that yet. In fact, the telescope was a toy. It was kind of a curiosity that you could see far away things nearby. But what I find so exciting is that Galileo looked up. Yeah, yeah, he like looked he up. Like he had the idea to take the toy and look up. Yeah, yeah, he looked <laughs> up. And he, to- he made a better version of this toy than had ever existed anywhere in the world. Galileo was really smart and figured out how to do it. But my point is it's like if I make a toilet plunger... Mm-hmm. And I make it just to suck it onto things and do nothing with, right? Yeah. And then you come along and you go, hey, I can use it to unclog the toilet. All of a sudden, that it's your invention now because you're the one who came up with the real good use for it. I, okay, I guess we can think of toilet plungers and telescopes the same I'm just saying, way. Galileo sounds like a bright guy to me. <laughs> yeah, he was brilliant. One of the most brilliant people there ever was. Plus, he understood the value of the telescope to human curiosity and to understanding the cosmos. So he looked up and he saw that the universe was not the perfect place that had previously been described. And the prevailing notion that the moon was a perfectly smooth orb, that the sun was a perfectly smooth orb, that the, 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 the planets were just these dots of light moving around the night sky, all in orbit around the Earth, this concept slowly was demantled, uh, dismantled, Observation by observation by Galileo. And he was doing this with not, we should tell everybody who's listening, he was doing this with a not very strong telescope, am I correct? Well, it had been better than anything built before, but you're right. If you, Today, you'd say, oh, you'd walk by it on the shelf because you can buy bino- simple binoculars like a Kmart that are better, better optics and, and better magnification than what Galileo had supplied. But consider what he was using compared to what was around before. Nothing was around before. So whatever you have is better than what was whatever anyone was using. Now here's what I want to understand as well. The doctrine that prevailed at that time was the Catholic Church. Yes. Was in charge of telling everybody what was going on, right? Exactly. In Italy and Rome, that's right. The seat of 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 the state basically was the Catholic Church. And am I correct in that Ar- Aristotle his theories were what the Catholic Church was going by, right? Indeed it was. Aristotle, you know, from ancient Greece, of course, had ideas about how the universe <laughs> Must be. The problem is, well, now he was successful in some areas and really not successful in other areas like astronomy and physics. He right. said stuff that was just flat out wrong. Like like the earth isn't moving. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can't blame him for that because it, it doesn't feel like the earth is yeah, moving. because it, it feels right. If it was moving, then we'd be moving. Something would jiggle, right, right if right, you're moving. Right, Something, right. the chandelier would shake. So, so you can't blame him for that. But what I do blame him for, he made a statement that heavy things fall faster than light things in direct proportion to their weight. So that if you had like a cannonball that weighed 10 pounds and a cannonball that weighed one pound and you drop them, the 10-pound cannonball would fall 10 times as fast. And he just wrote this because it made sense to him and everyone believed it and no one thought to do the experiment until Galileo. So Galileo went ahead and dropped it. And now I have to tell you, in preparing for this show today, I dropped everything in my house <laughs> from like a book and a pencil, like everything. And, and everyone at home should do this because they do, they do fall at the same rate. Yes, yes. So if you take a pencil and a book and drop them, obviously the book weighs more than the pencil. They will fall to earth at exactly the same rate and hit the floor at the same time. Now, what's interesting about this and what's interesting about what was happening at the time, and stop me if I'm wrong, is that Galileo, you know, so he's got this Aristotle's doctrine. He does, he does the, the law of motion. And he realizes, oh, 
Aristotle was wrong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he must have not tried this yes, or been yes. drunk or whatever. Right. And then all of a sudden, he thinks, well, if he was wrong there, <laughs> he could be wrong for a lot of other things. And the Catholic Church had, had based much of its religious philosophy on the teachings of Aristotle. There was a good resonance between the two. So. And we should remind people the Inquisition was taking place at this time. <laughs> so to challenge the the Catholic Church was, I mean, on things smaller than this, to challenge the Catholic Church was not a good idea. It would be audacious, that's right. And so Galileo had, you know, huevos to do this, you know. He, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so Galileo, so this is what happens. Galileo sees that, that Aristotle's a bit of a schmuck. He decides he's going to, you know, go ahead and test some of his other stuff. He looks through the telescope. He notices Jupiter. He notices planets moving. He sees craters on the moon. He starts journaling this. Am I correct? Yeah, he journals it. And what he noticed about Jupiter was that Jupiter had what he called stars that clustered near Jupiter, stayed with Jupiter wherever Jupiter was in the night sky, and that these objects moved around Jupiter. And later we would learn, of course, they were Jupiter's moons, the four brightest of Jupiter's right. moons. Today they're named in Galileo's honor. They're called the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Oh, these, how exciting. These moons went around Jupiter and were not going around Earth. This was an astonishing fact because it flew in the face of all prevailing philosophy. Now, but what I love about Galileo was he kept this to himself and just started journaling it because, what's his name, Bruno? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you knew about Bruno. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Giordano Bruno was a, a monk who, who, a brilliant philosopher in his day, but he suggested that the stars in the night sky, maybe they're like the sun, and if they are, maybe they have planets in orbit around them. Because he liked Copernicus's idea that maybe the sun is in the middle of things, not the earth. So he started flapping his big fat gums. <laughs> and so he suggests that maybe if there's life on one of the planets around the sun, earth, maybe there's life around the planets around these other stars. And if that's the case, then the glory of God is manifest everywhere in the universe and not just here on earth. Earth is not the object of God's creation. And then the church burned them at the stake. That was bad for the church. Yeah, that was considered her not only heretical. <laughs> It was considered, it, it was, it was, it was, he was impertinently heretical, an impertinent heretic. You know what happens if you're an impertinent heretic rather my, than a heretic? My guess is they make you get naked in some way. <laughs> Am exactly I right? right. So <laughs> The Catholics love to strip you down. <laughs> so he was burned at the stake, naked and upside down. So, okay, so now Galileo keeps his information to himself, knowing that, Oh, you know, Bruno and the whole naked, upside-down burning thing. Well, initially, I mean, he doesn't quite... I mean, he writes a book. He writes a book... No, but I mean, he starts on, gathering the information. Exactly. And that's, I think, the right way to think about it. His first book on this, which reports his telescopic observations, he's... Yeah, some of them are heretical, but it depends on what you do with it philosophically. Are you going to say, Aristotle's wrong, the church is wrong, you got to rethink the Bible? Is this, is this what's behind this book or not? So the book comes out, and it's a, it's a curiosity. It would be later that Galileo publishes a book called A Dialogue of the Two Chief World Systems. And there is the battle. But he waited till he gathered all that information. And he got it until he knew that his arguments were irrefutable. And in the day, you're right, there's the risk of, 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 of uh, persecution because if you are a heretic, the Inquisition would inquire and you could end up tortured or dead Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in the year 1600, and Galileo was making his observations of the night sky in the year 1609. So this is fresh in everybody's memory. Nobody Especially someone that you spoke with, 
who has a lot of information. Am yeah. I correct? In fact, yes, uh, we have uh, interviews for this show. The best-selling author, Deva Sobel, is she? She's written several best-selling books. One of them is Galileo's daughter. Galileo's daughter. A whole story about Galileo's daughter, illegitimate daughter. He's got. She's got all the scoop on what was going on in Galileo's <laughs> private life, as well as the culture of the day. She's also the best-selling author of Longitude. Uh, which is the story of John Harrison and how he invented the first clock that you could take on a ship. So uh, let's find out what Deva has to say about Galileo. Great. Now, you're some of an expert now on, on Galileo, and we only know him as a guy who got into a fight with the Catholic Church, but your research has made him a much more sort of fleshed-out character in the history of science. And I was wondering, what could you tell us about the time in which he lived and what his telescope meant to the people of the day and to the church and in history. He was Tuscan. He came from he came from Tuscany and he was living in Venice. To me to, to me Tuscan is a loaf of bread I get in the, in the grocery okay, store. Well that that's a venerable association. He certainly loved the food and always wanted to go back there, but he he taught in Venice for almost 20 years. He always needed funding. There's some, like, like all scientists. Ever, exactly. There's always the funding problem. So that there's always the deep pockets of the military who can help that out. Definitely. So there it was, a military instrument. All right, so Galileo is now selling his telescope to the military. Yes, yes. And he got a uh, uh, he got tenure at the university and a big raise. So it was great. But then he had the idea of perfecting the instrument and looking at the moon. And that's when everything changed. Because the astronomy of his day was not what you would call astronomy. It was all mathematical. It was figuring out orbits and predicting planetary positions for the astronomy. Astrologers. That's what it was. Nobody was talking about what are the planets made of, because the idea was that everything beyond the sphere of the moon, from the sphere of the moon on out, was all made of the same stuff, this ether, this perfect substance. And everything beyond the earth was different from the earth, because on the earth there was change and decay and death, but the heavens were eternal and perfect. So no one even imagined that what you discovered here on Earth, either materially or physically, could have any relationship to the rest of the universe. That's right. And so so how active were the astrologers then trying to predict the future of things? I guess they needed orbits, and so you get a handy mathematician at arm's reach, you got him. Right, and there had been people like Copernicus who in trying to improve on the orbits, had come up with a really different idea of how things worked. Um, but he was even his idea wasn't accepted as reality for a long time. But Copernicus time. put the sun back in the center of the known universe. Exactly. He put the sun at the center with the Earth in motion around it, which seemed like a really crazy idea. Because, of course, the Earth doesn't move. Of course it doesn't move. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, you'd feel it under your feet. That's right. And that was one of the things Galileo had to fight. It was that idea that got him into all that trouble. He took all the heat for Copernicus. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, Copernicus was on his deathbed when he published his great work so that no one could kill him for it. Well, nobody made a sound. I mean, it was very quietly accepted, and his book was dedicated to the Pope, so nobody considered these things irreligious. You mean Copernicus's Copernicus book was dedicated to the Pope? was dedicated to the Pope of his time. So he didn't have a sense that he was doing something really irreligious, or he did in he knew it would be very cagey.
liturgy to dedicate it to the Pope. So he should die as quickly as he can. Uh, <laughs> well, he was old by the time he published it because he hesitated for so long. All right. So we've got so now. But I read stories that Galileo was a pompous, obnoxious, uh, irreverent ass, basically, and that that's really what got him into trouble. Had he been a little more politic with the powers of the day, not the military heads where he sold his telescope, but the religious powers who had tremendous influence over life and culture. So are you saying that it's purely his discoveries that got him into trouble and not that he was just a pain in everyone's rear? It was a mix because he loved to debate publicly and he was quite full of himself and could really embarrass people. So in a debate, if you were arguing with him, he would bolster your opinion for a long time to make you feel that he really was not against you. And then he would come in and cut you off at the knees and make you feel ridiculous. So he's the kind of guy where after such an event, they'd drag him into the alley and beat him up. I don't know that that happened, but probably people were tempted. He, he was definitely in dispute with other scholars. But he didn't have patience for people who thought that Aristotle had figured everything out. Uh, he believed in experiment and observation, and he trusted his senses. And the other thing he brought to this was skill as an artist. So when he looked at the moon, from what he knew about perspective, he realized he was looking at mountains. So he surely was a believing Catholic, but the he didn't care whether his views conflicted with the priests. Right. He felt that the priests, although their theology was the highest science of the day, they hadn't studied physics, and they shouldn't try to tell people how to interpret the Bible. He really believed that the Bible was the true word of God, but that it was abstruse. And it wasn't meant to teach the people astronomy. It doesn't even mention the names of the planets. So why would you go to the Bible to study nature? That's what his argument was. If you want to study nature, you read the book of nature. So in the end, why did they put him under house arrest? Well, it's one of the big mistakes he made was to tell the Holy Fathers of the Church that they could not interpret the Bible. Plus, he's writing in Italian, so regular folk who are illiterate can read it, not just the academic folk. Yes. He had a philosophy that there were very intelligent people who, for one reason or another, had not gone to university and therefore could not read Latin but that they would be interested. And so wasn't he friends with the Pope that ultimately arrested him? Yes. And then he became enemies, I guess. Yes. <laughs> you know how those things go. <laughs> so today, I, that's, so that's interesting that back then you would put a scientist under house arrest for who, with an idea different from prevailing dogma. Right. Well, he, he was tried because of his book, but still when it came out, got everybody very upset, and he was called to trial in Rome. So it's one of the famous banned books of, our, of, Indeed. of modern times. It was banned for 200 years. 200 years, so you're talking... Even after people accepted the fact that the Earth really was in motion around the sun, that book stayed on the index. <laughs> so uh, what books would you ban today? What scientists would you arrest? Me? No one. <laughs> Do you think we are at risk of returning to a time where 
that freedom of speech would would be squashed? Well, I, I think the science and religion issue is always an issue. I mean, we're 400 years past Galileo's trial, and we're still talking about it. I know back then there were a lot of body parts that people kept after people died, just as keepsakes, perhaps. Is that why they cut off Galileo's finger? Apparently so, that he, by that point, there was some kind of hero veneration going on, and they took the finger, they took several vertebrae. I think you can still see one of those at the medical school in Padua. This is creepy, you know. Yeah, it's creepy, but it was the taste of the time. I guess today people get autographs of famous people, and back then they would just take your body parts. I guess, yeah, I'd... I kind of like the autograph, yeah. <laughs> David, how many telescopes did Galileo build? Many. He kept improving it. I, I don't know how many he built, but probably two that survive are actually the ones he built. And they are, they live at the Museum of the History of Science in Florence, but one of them is here in the United States now. The first time it's ever left Italy, so it's really exciting. It's at the Franklin Institute. In, in Philadelphia. Right. Mm -hmm. And it will be there until September. I say Galileo was right all along, that in the distant future, when you really understand the deep meaning of the Bible, and you really understand your physics and astronomy, it will all make sense. It will all hang together. But until that day, they have to be separate. And religion cannot have any control over scientific study. And I think he was dead on. Dead on? Yeah. Live dead on. on. Yeah, live on, dead on. <laughs> So, uh, David Sobel, thank you for this interview. And uh, what, what are your, what's your next project? I'm trying to write a play about Copernicus. You don't stop. No, I really, I really like those guys. <laughs> Is it a love affair with Copernicus as you had with Galileo? No. No, and maybe that's why I'm having so much trouble with it. <laughs> I like him a lot, but it's not the same. We'll get you back on when the play's done. Okay. This is Star Talk. I love that interview. I love Deva. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you why she's having a hard time writing the play about Copernicus, David. Why? If you're still listening, I'll tell you why. Because he's kind of a kiss butt. He's not. I'm. I mean, I'm sorry. Galileo is sexy. I'm now listening to her talk about him, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I'm picturing him look like Pat, Patrick Swayze. I, I love him because I love the way he like um, challenges people. Yeah, yeah. I think he's the kind of guy that would make Sarah Palin cry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because like, I loved when she said that he would lure you into a debate and yeah. have you think that he was like agreeing with you yeah. and then he would just drop the bomb well, that he knew more than you did. And plus, Copernicus didn't publish until he was ready to die. So whatever... And he was a kiss butt. He, <laughs> at the last minute, he wrote a thing. To, he dedicated it to the Pope. Dedicated to the Pope. Yeah, he was trying to, you know, not get in trouble. Yeah. He was trying not to get burned. But I, I, don't, I don't like that he was just kind of a... He kissed butt. And not only that, there's a preface in, in, in the front of the book of his famous book that Copernicus uh, Copernicus's book and no he didn't write the preface but it's there in front of his book which What's says say? it says that this idea where the sun is in the center of the known universe and not the earth is probably not right but it's useful for calculating orbits oh see wishy-washy <laughs> um come on Copernicus Copernicus get off the pot <laughs> give me a break and and so meanwhile my man Galileo okay 
he now this is the other thing that I found so interesting about what David was saying. Mm-hmm. Galileo, you know, he, Copernicus dies. He he writes this. Galileo has all his compilations, everything he's written. He knows he's going to challenge the church. What he does, genius. My man is genius. He writes it in Italian. In Italian. You got it. Because that is what the people could read. Those who are literate would only know Italian. They certainly would not know Latin. That's And most other scholars would be writing in Latin to speak to each other, not to speak to the common man. So now, am I right by saying that basically what happened, this is how I'm hearing it, mm-hmm. is that Galileo shook things up because now he can't be burned. They can't really kill him because he's got the masses have been reading his book. Yeah, they un- can ban the book. But they can't kill him yet. At, well, they can't kill he's him. He's popular. But he's so popular that it would be a political, it would be a bad political decision for the church to do anything really mean to him. They put him under house arrest. They didn't torture him. It's still kind of tough to be a famous, important guy and be, to be you know, jailed in your own home. But the, that's what they did. And But he was not martyred the way... Right. Giordano Bruno. Now, I've been to Rome, I've got to tell you, and, you know, the Romans, and I'm, I'm Italian, my people are Italian, and, and they like to collect saints' ears and all that stuff. I love that they have his finger. Yeah, and when I when I visited Italy, I learned that it, at the time that it was supposed to be his index finger, but I but David later told me after the interview that it's not his index finger, it's his middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> and it's propped up, sticking straight up in the I display like that. cabinet. So he basically told the Vatican he feels the same way that they felt about him. <laughs> <laughs> He's had the last word even in death. By the way, we have a, a limited number of autographed copies of one of the, uh, David Sobel's uh, latest books, The Planets. And Ooh. if you can convince us why you might deserve one of these autographed copies, uh, tell us on our website, startalkradio.net. Uh, sign up, tell us why you think you deserve one of these books, and we will send you a free autographed copy, startalkradio.net. I, I, I want one. <laughs> Well, you better write in and tell me why you... I'm a good co-host, I believe. I I deserve one. (laughs) Tell me why you want one and need one. Tell me, are there, um, you know, like, because I I still can't get this whole church thing out of my head. Mm -hmm. Tell me, are there other, are there other priests or anything that that had, that... Well, it turns out that being religious didn't mean you couldn't be scientific. In fact, there are other folks, there are many famous scientists who had been priests or even monks. And in fact... The there's a there's a there, there's a priest who 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 is responsible for the idea of the Big Bang. You're his, kidding me. His name is George Lemaitre. He's a he's a Belgian priest, and he was a contemporary of Einstein. He saw Einstein's theories and said, "Wow, hey, I can have a solution to your equations that says that the universe is expanding and was smaller in the past and maybe had a beginning." And so it doesn't preclude it, but you just have to know how to keep your... And as Davis said, she said that, that, that Galileo himself was a good Catholic. Yeah. He just didn't believe that, that religion was where you went to for science. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so, in fact, I wonder what our audience thinks about science and religion and how this, all this works. And we have our, our phones are now open. Oh, exciting. Yes, yes. Give us a call at one eight seven seven five star talk Let me hear what you have to say about the relationship between church and science and Galileo and all that goes. <laughs> By the way, the church, the Catholic Church, in fact, does have scientists. There's a friend of mine who is a, an astronomer for the Vatican. Really? Yes, yes. And I've got him right now. Oh, let's talk to him. Yeah, yeah. His name is Chris. Let's check him out. Father Chris. Oh, Chris, Neil Tyson here. How are you doing? 
Oh, good. Good to hear you, Neil. Yeah, I've got you on the radio, and I, I had to call you because our subject today is is the invention of the telescope and the International Year of Astronomy and Galileo. And last I checked, you're a Vatican astronomer. So That's that sounds, sounds like you, you should be in the middle of some of this. So let me just ask, what... Uh, why does the Vatican have astronomers in the first place? Well, um, they're just traceable to Galileo, or even before? Uh, well, before before that, uh, Upstart came along and thought he knew all about astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> the young whippersnapper, yeah. Well, well, at least a little before. You know, uh -huh. a matter of about twenty, thirty years before, um, because it was realized that the calendar, which had been going since Julius Caesar's time, so you know, amazing a long time, was now getting a little bit out of step with the seasons. This so would be the, the Julian calendar, right? The Julian yeah, calendar. Uh -huh. So Pope Gregory the 13th, it was, uh, brought in a team to advise him, and that's why we now have the Gregorian calendar. So, of course, astronomers are the keepers of time, so he doesn't bring in biologists for this, he brings in astronomers. So now Galileo comes along, and so he's doing astronomy. He's a mathematician, he's a physicist, and mm -hmm. he gets into trouble. And so what is your reflection on that period? Is he, was he out of line? Was he obnoxious? Was he right? And what happened, and plus, didn't something happen in 1992 between the Vatican and the Pope, which seemed a little late for my measures of time? <laughs> but what is that story? Oh, it's a Vatican, oh, it's a long story. So, uh, <laughs> Galileo had a wonderful instinct in physics, you know, how things worked, but he couldn't prove it. And I think that was part of the problem uh, as well. It wasn't proved till a couple of hundred years later, uh, really, uh, pinned down the obs very fine observations needed to show that the sun was really in the center and the earth was moving around it. So with Galileo's discoveries, are you, you're suggesting that had he had better data than what his telescope showed, you think the church would have been just fine and would have celebrated him at the time rather than put him under house arrest? Uh, there was a big, you know, philosophy change that had to happen. You know, everything was wedded to the philosophy of Aristotle, um, which was sort of great. Uh, but there was a physics there with Aristotle as well uh, about, you know, how things moved and where the earth was. And uh, that was a problem. Also, in interpretation of the Bible and the Bible had the sun sort of standing still. And how could that, uh, you know, you know, how could that happen? So how much yeah. of this was inertia of an old idea and how much of it was sort of strict religious uh, dogma? Oh, both, you know. Because uh, we, we all have some inertia for old yeah, ideas. We, we all have inertia. Uh, there's always enormous mix-up of emotions and reasons. Church under attack uh, from Protestants in the north. Um, you know, retrench, you know, put up the barriers, set up the defenses. You know, it's all that kind of thing as well. So uh, and the this new stuff, this new stuff called science, was uh, going to collapse the, the the ancient philosophy on which the theology was based. So right, right. where's that going? So yeah, all so kinds of issues. What happens today if you discover something that disagrees with the Pope? I mean, you're in the. Are you a Jesuit priest right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to discover anything in science that's going to disagree with the Pope because the Pope isn't a scientist. You know, a wonderful <laughs> person, a present Pope, a wonderful theologian, but he's not a scientist. So you know, he, he will listen to scientists. <laughs> okay. Well, that's an that's that's a that's a start. I think. Oh, definitely. <laughs> that's an improvement over all that we've read about from centuries ago. So yeah. you're a pretty safe scientist working in the employ of the Pope. That's what you're telling me. 
Yes, definitely. (laughs) Well, Chris, it's been great to have you on the line. All right, Neil. No disrespect to the Vatican, but you know I'm now in love with Galileo, so I'm going to channel my inner Galileo. And I'm going to tell you right out of right out of the gate, I'm not going to believe anyone who sounds like he's from the cast of Spam a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't like how jittery he every every answer to every question was like. Oh, 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 oh. Well, he's just trying to answer the question. I mean, that's his accent. Oh, you heard what he was saying. It, what would the when you asked him about Galileo, the first thing he said was he said, "Oh, well, he couldn't prove everything he was." Well, of course he can. He was under house arrest. <laughs> I mean, he did as much as he could possibly do with what he had. Yeah, so it's a little misrepresented there. I mean, Galileo did really well to make a case that Earth was not the center of all motion. And 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 what the good father was trying to say is that the real irrefutable evidence would take much longer. That's what he was saying. And I would also like to know why the Vatican needs astronomers. Doesn't Italy have astronomers? Yes, the country of Italy has astronomers, yes. And, and, and yet the, the Vatican still has to have their own stuff. <laughs> it just, the Catholics tick me off. These are my people, but they tick me off. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, this, I'll take astronomers any way we can get them. There aren't that many of us in the world, you know. I agree, but I also love when you asked him, like, well, will the Pope challenge you? And he's like, well, no, but some of our Popes are, like, how old? Like, 112? Yeah, they get like, old. Yeah, like they they get tell them there. whatever they want to tell them. <laughs> You're listening to Star Talk. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, with my co-host, comedian Lynn Coplitz. Our phone number is one 877 talk Looks like we have a caller on the line. Uh, caller, they said... Yes, it's Sarah from Santa Monica. Sarah, what do you got for us? Hi, yes. I was just wondering, um, what do you think if we found extraterrestrials? Do you think the church would uh, try to baptize it? Okay. <laughs> yes, Lynn, you have a reply. Thank you for that, for that call, Sarah. Sarah, I think the Catholic Church will baptize anything if it'll stand still long enough <laughs> and eat a cracker. Lynn? It's true. <laughs> Oh, my grandmother used... Are you kidding? Okay. I mean, maybe... Maybe... Okay. I, th- I think any fanatical, any... The Baptist, same way. You think everyone would be lined up to convert the alien into whatever is their religion? Absolutely. It won't even get off the craft. Every Baptist, every Catholic will be there with holy water and snakes and everything else they got. So this is a, this is a frontier of, of, of culture. Except what for you and I. We will show up and we will say extraterrestrial friend be a free thinker <laughs> all right thanks for your call sarah so let me let me ask you lynn what do you you're, you're born catholic right so you i will, actually i was not baptized catholic is that hilarious my mother refused to baptize me oh, catholic but my grandmother would take me to mass all the time oh okay all right well we've got catholic priests out there <laughs> as scientists and they're doing good work uh, uh father corbelly is a he studies stars and how they work and what their chemical compositions are and where they're moving. So he does real astrophysics, and that's how that is. He knows where I'm to. I'm just teasing. I know that he do. knows where to put the line in the sand, as did Galileo. Galileo said, "The Bible tells you how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go." Right. Exactly. That's how that. Speaking came out. of how the heavens go. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk more about uh, telescopes. Okay. Yeah. Can we? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, can we talk about the big? The, what, what's the big old telescope right well, now? We got, we... Well, the, the telescopes, let me tell you what happened. So Galileo reveals that Earth is not the center of all motion. Fine. And then other telescopes come along, along the years. And we learned that the stars in the night sky are not the entire universe. In fact, the stars in the night sky are part of our Milky Way galaxy. 
And that galaxy is just one of countless other galaxies in the universe. So every time you turn a bigger telescope to the night sky, we end up smaller <laughs> than right. we had previously imagined. Every time that has happened. Every single time. It is an ego-dismantling device. Every time. And so people try to... try to. So some people don't survive these transitions. They, be, they get depressed. They, they try to resist it. They say it can't be so. And so. But I have a different view on this. I see telescopes as revealing how majestic the universe is to us. And our three pounds of gray matter actually can figure out how the universe works based on the information telescopes bring to us. I think it's quite a celebration. Now, you said something to me before the show, which I, I still don't understand completely. So I'm going to ask you again what, mm-hmm. or I'm going to ask you now what it means. You said that that they help the telescopes and, and the Hubble Space Telescope in general, I mean, specifically, yeah. not in general, specifically helps us by, by, by looking, what did you say? You said by looking forward, we look back? No, no, they look what'd back. You say? As you look farther what does that out, mean? As, as you look out in space, you look back in time. <gasps> Oh, because of light years. Yeah, well, it, it takes time, light time. So, in fact, I see you're seated seated about a yard from me, three feet. Light travels about one foot every billionth of a second. So, I see you not as you are, but as you were three billionths of a second ago. And you haven't changed much in that time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're not looking closer. <laughs> and if you go farther enough away, the moon takes about a second and a half for its light to reach us. The sun about eight and a half minutes, eight minutes and twenty seconds. The farther away you go. The older is the light from that object that you see. And so you get more and more powerful telescopes. Take the Hubble telescope, for example. It can look way out into the universe, so far back that you're looking near the beginning of time itself. Now, one of my favorite things ever is that the Hubble Space Telescope, <laughs> one of the most productive telescopes ever built, correct? It is the most productive scientific instrument of any kind there ever was. And you can measure that a lot of ways. How many scientists participate? How many research papers were published? Every metric has it winning the contest. I, I don't want to be mean, but when when did when did the Hubble telescope? When was it? Created? It was launched in early 1990s. Yes. In the 1990s, it was. It, and clearly, we've come far in the space program. We have more women now involved because when we launched it, it had a problem. Yes, like it, it did. Have it, a, what does it have to do with women? What are you saying? I'm just saying only men would send something. Up into space, and all of a sudden, be like, "Oh my gosh, the pictures are fuzzy." Yeah, they had you remembered? Yes, you didn't the, the, test picture, it? the pictures were fuzzy <laughs> at the beginning of the time. At the at, at when we launched it, all the mirrors had a perfect shape, but one of the mirrors had the wrong perfect shape, and the shapes didn't work together to make the sharp images that we had all expected. But we'd spent a lot of money and time in this. We had we had to call a do over. <laughs> it was going to do what we needed it to do, so then we we fixed. We it, went correct? back up and <laughs> serviced it with the shuttle. Shuttle astronauts went up and serviced it. They had to invent special tools. They had to um, figure out what needed to be changed, put in corrective corrective glasses, corrective they were mirrors, great. a corrective system of mirrors to fix the bad mirror and turn it all into good mirrors. And so then it became the telescope we had all dre- dreamt it needed to be. So it's strong. Its eyesight is strong now. And it's above the atmosphere because the atmosphere wreaks havoc on your ability to see sharp images. Here's light coming from across the universe, and it's a nice sharp point of light, and it hits the atmosphere, and it gets jiggled and smudged and, and, and interfered with, and you end up with a fuzzy image on Earth's surface. Tell me quickly, what did the what what are some of the things that we found from the Hubble telescope? We, like we found that black, black holes. Black holes lurk in the center of galaxies. Hubble confirmed the age of the universe itself. 
We How learned did that, that happen? Well, How it, we it, look that? out in time, and you look at these think these exploding stars. We call them standard candles because they there's a certain kind of exploding star that all have the same brightness each time they explode, and they're really bright, so you can see them halfway across the universe. Mm-hmm. So Hubble got good data on these standard candles, and once you know how far away an object is, and you see how fast it's receding from us, you get the expansion rate of the universe, you nail it down, and you turn the clock back. If it's expanding today, the universe was smaller yesterday. And if you know exactly awesome. how fast it's expanding, you turn the clock back, and you can say that all the universe was in the same place at the same time 14 billion years ago. You know what is the joy of doing a show with with an astrophysicist? What I'd like to do is call one of my friends. You can call yeah, an it. astronaut. I've got, a, I've got an astronaut friend. He's, a, he's an engineer who's one of the people who designed the tools that they use to fix the Hubble telescope. And he was a spacewalker. He went on one of the shuttle missions to the space station. I called him. He didn't pick up the phone. You called me. <laughs> Let's call Paul, my astronaut friend, and see see if he's see if he should be home. He's expecting me. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, is this Paul? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, Paul. This is Neil deGrasse Tyson with Lynn Complex, my co-host, calling from Star Talk. How the hell are you today? Hi, Paul. Uh, good. Yeah. Hi, Neil. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Yeah, yeah. You know, our show today is on telescopes, and we knew that you had something to do with the Hubble as an astronaut an active astronaut and an engineer. I was wondering, just tell us uh, quickly, what uh, what did you do for Hubble? Yeah, Hubble, I started my career there uh, designing tools on Hubble to fix it for the first and second servicing mission. And it's, it's had like four or five servicing missions, right? Yeah, five servicing missions, although the numbering got a little uh, messed up. Uh, the last one was 4A. Oh, 4A, okay. <laughs> well, Paul, I just heard you say you designed tools on Hubble. You mean on it or for it? You weren't sitting for there going, oh, we yes. need a... <laughs> No, for Hubble, to work on Hubble. <laughs> so uh, uh, the tools have to be different. Why? I mean, if you need a screwdriver, well, you need a screwdriver. Well, when the sun shines on them and shines on Hubble, and the sun shines, it's, it's plus 250 degrees Fahrenheit. When it's um, in the shade, it's minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's got radiation bombarding it all the time. So you're, and hot, and no cold. Air. you're hot and cold on and off. On and off, yep, and there's no air, a lot of radiation, so uh, you just can't bring up your average power tool. So now do now are there rooms created like that at NASA that that's where you go into these things and, and you test this stuff out before you take it with you? Yeah, yeah, we have uh, thermal vacuum chambers where we suck all the air out and make it hot and cold, and we uh, vibrate it for the shuttle launches. Uh, radiation we don't test here, but we just design it for that. Now, I have another question. Do you did now? Did you have to talk to the engineers? I, I'm really I'm not the rocket scientist, clearly, because I'm going to ask some really dumb questions. But like, did you talk to the people who who designed the the Hubble Hubble uh, telescope itself? So that uh, you yeah. had a nice. Yeah. So you guys worked together. Yeah, all the uh, replacement instruments, we had to make uh, special tools to interface with all of those instruments. So, yeah, we had to work directly with them, and it's a uh, crew agent tools, it's called. So there's uh, certain tools that are your regular extensions, drills, screwdrivers, and then there's crew aids, which are special handles or fixtures and, you know, things to move the instruments around because some of them are pretty big. So what you're saying, some of your tools are sort of, space age versions of ordinary tools and other parts of the portfolio are are special elements that enables like national life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a special handle then that folds up and uh, you know moves out of the way when you have to close the doors or uh, a special place where you put your spare and hang it over the side of the orbiter so it has to be able to hold it 
um, when you're getting a new instrument and putting it in hull. Right. And so, and how hard is this? I mean, is it like working well, on your the, car? Well, the, the, the Accio instruments are about the size of a refrigerator freezer. And the um, other instruments that go on the side and the fine guidance sensor, they're about the size of a baby grand piano. So you got big, so you have big, to work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're, wait, you're in zero G. So, so yeah. now yeah. I have another question that brings me to good speaking of being weightless. Is there some sort of contraption that that locks you into the Hubble while you're working on it? Yeah, usually on a spacewalk, you got two folks, and one is on the end of the robotic arm, and they're in a foot restraint, and so it's kind of like ski boots. You're you're kind of locked in at your feet. Um, and then we have uh, other foot restraints that we move all around. There's the other person is the free floater, and they move around using their hands, um, even though it's called a space walk. Um, and uh, you have to get in a foot restraint, or you hold on with one hand and you know use the tool with the other hand. So none of you guys are just freely floating. Uh, no. Whenever you are going to actually do something, you really got to brace yourself. Otherwise, you know, Newton's laws uh, spin you in the opposite direction. There's that physics line I keep telling you about. I know, uh, yeah, I've been studying up on that. Now, this is an interesting question. How many, just tell me, I'm just curious, how many times do you go over your checklist before you leave and, and before you get out onto the, uh, the craft? Oh, well, yeah, usually you have... Um, Let's see, hundreds of hours of in the simulators and <laughs> spacewalks. So you, you do it, and then you try not to memorize anything, and you have somebody inside called the IVA, the Inner Vehicular Activity Crew Member, and then the EVA is the person outside spacewalk. But you have the person inside talking to the ground and to you, reviewing your checklist and, and you know, making sure you don't forget something. Now, do you guys ever see space junk whiz by? Because we always read about space junk, and I'm <laughs> uh, just curious. <laughs> Yeah, now it's uh, the uh, the distances are so great uh, that uh, no, you really don't see it. Uh, usually, the ground notifies you if something bigger than a softball is getting close, and close is like kind of within a mile or two. Oh, so they they track a softball and you bring a catcher's mitt, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so they basically what you actually hear they're like duck in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to duck when it's seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour, but. <laughs> Really interesting. So, Paul, we got to run, but thanks for having you on the line. I'd, I'd like to be able to call you back one day because we'll, we'll be in space a lot. It'd be nice to have an astronaut at arm's reach here. Sure, anytime. All right, thanks a lot. We'll Thank see you. you. All right. All right. Bye. You're welcome. Take care. So exciting. I got to speak to an astronaut. Well, so Galileo and astronauts, I, you know, they all just. I'm in love. <laughs> I really am. I think he looks like Patrick Swayze, too. <laughs> well, let me tell you, we've, uh, just to remind you, we're given, we've got some, some freebies for you. If you log on to startalkradio.net and tell us why you deserve one of Deva Sobel's books, The Planets, autographed, signed copy of one of her books. Tell us why you deserve a copy. And if, we, if you convince us, we'll send you one. And not only that, we have signed Posters. It's a Hubble Space Telescope poster signed by one of the astronauts. So log on to the. That's cool too. It's all cool and it's all free if we decide that you convinced us badly enough that you want one of these. So go on to StarTalkRadio.net. So Lynn, so you like astronauts now as well as Galileo. I do, and I didn't say this to Paul, but I've got to tell you, I think the most important thing I would be doing. And, you know, before I went to fix the, not that I would ever be fixing the Hubble, but, but I would be checking my boots. 
Those boots that lock you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you be checking them? Like, the last thing you need is just someone angry with you, cutting your Velcro on your strap. It's like checking your parachute before oh, you... Oh, you don't want to float away. I don't want to float away. I don't want, like, the, well, the astronaut lady that wore the diaper. Yeah. I don't want someone like that angry with me, <laughs> cutting my Velcro. And <laughs> so it's important to have, not have enemies when you're an astronaut. Absolutely. You, you depend on so many thousands of other people. And be a good communicator, because the IVA people and the EVA people... And this is something that that is interesting. When they fixed the Hubble, mm-hmm. it's not like they went and did this in a, in an hour. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was days and days and days and days. <laughs> this is hard so there work. There was a lot of, because now he said, Paul said that the, there are people inside directing them, and there are people outside that are like, so they're telling them, turn to the right, turn to the right. Turn to the right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, great. I can't get the space wrench to go that way. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. But now they've got it all fixed. Our phone number here at StarTalk is one eight seven seven five StarTalk, And it looks like we've got... Who do we have on the line? We have Steve on the line. Steve? Steve, where are you from? Hi, Neil. Uh, I'm from Washington. Oh, okay. Washington, D.C. or the state? D.C. D.C. Well, welcome to StarTalk. You got a question? Hi. Hi, Neil. Hi, Lynn. Um... I have a digital camera, and I was wondering, I've heard, is there digital telescopes up there? Well, yeah. I mean, in fact, astronomers and the whole astrophysics community has been digital since the early 1980s. We were one of the first to create digital images. We, create, we had that demand for it. So now, contrary to what many people think, they think we go to telescopes and look behind, look through the lens and see the universe. No, it's all recorded digitally. Many, many times we don't even leave our office because if it's digital, then who cares how far away your computer is that's analyzing the data? It could be across the room. It could be across the ocean. It could be halfway around the world. So all of our data are digital. And the Hubble data is all coming in digitally. And Hubble, which came of age in the 1990s, that's about when the world, was, well, at least the, the developed world, was coming onto the Internet. So images from the Hubble telescope were perfectly timed in their digital form to be spread far and wide as attachments in people's emails, as screensavers on people's computers. And so uh, the Hubble telescope was not only great scientifically, it was one of the, it's, it's one of the most important ambassadors of scientific discovery there ever was. Lynn. This has been an exciting show. And now we've learned that we can look back. In time. In time. Will we ever be able to look forward? Not, not in any way that we know because mm-hmm. it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the Hubble doesn't have much much more time left. Yeah. Right? So this new this new uh, uh, servicing mission. Oh, by the way, I didn't get, I, forgive me. I didn't give the last name of our of my astronaut friend Paul. It's Paul Richards, and he's a, he's an active astronaut with NASA, and he uh, and, and he's down in Maryland where he works at the at the uh, Goddard Space Flight Center there. And so okay. I just want to thank Paul for agreeing to be on, on. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, yeah. But now tell me now, wait, we have, five, we have five more years, you said? Yeah, so the servicing for Hubble gives it a new lease on life. There were some parts that had broken and had come in disrepair. And so those were replaced. Other instruments were swapped out. And so now Hubble is more capable than it has ever been in any of the previous servicing missions. And it'll go for at least another five years if everything works as planned. But it could go Longer than five years, but that, that we're not going to stop there. I mean, we're still we're going to yeah, exactly. create some. We're going to have some more stuff go up there. Exactly, aren't we? exactly. So there's the next generation space telescope named for James Webb, who was the head of NASA during the, the famous Apollo era back in the '60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is specifically tuned to observe the universe so early in time that we will see galaxies themselves being born. <gasps> 
That's exciting. Yeah. So when you see things being born, you feel it's it's you've got to celebrate that. <laughs> Someone just peeled a Spock ear off and did a jump for joy. <laughs> so and not only that. So we've got that telescope uh, looking to the edge of the universe, and there are others. For example, that, that's the that's a telescope looking far. We actually have telescopes looking nearby. One of them was launched, and it's the Kepler telescope, named for a famous astronomer, a German astronomer, a contemporary of Galileo's, actually. And so this telescope is going to observe the nearest 100,000 stars. Guess why? Because we're looking for a habitable zone. We're looking for life in all the right places. We're, <laughs> what we think are the right places, we're looking for Earth's. But well, a scientist, when they're, you're looking for life, you're just looking for proof that something can live here. Well, yeah, of any kind. It would be great if we found little green men and little green women. That would be really <laughs> cool. But if we're searching for life, we're searching for life of any kind, we'd be, we'd be tickled to death if some of that life we found was microbial. That's exciting. And so once we got that, then now here's the thing. Suppose the life is not what we call intelligent. I mean, not that it's dumb, but that it's just microbial. There are what we call biomarkers. There are features in the atmosphere of a planet that would reveal the existence of life that could be thriving on the planet's surface. And so the next step, once we've logged these planets, is to look for biomarkers to then make a new catalog of what are the most likely planets that could possibly have life. So that's what that'll be. And, next and once we find that, we'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back. And so, in fact, next week's show is uh, we're going to feature an interview with a senior, SETI, a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, Seth Shostak. SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So the entire oh. subject of that show is going to be on just that. I just got goosebumps. I, well, there you have it. And so we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, it's been great. It's been fun, Lynn. Oh my God! It has been fun. We learned. We learned that we are not the center of the universe. And you can and comfort and try to get some free stuff on StarTalkRadio.net and tell us why you deserve one of David Sovel's books, The Planet, and get a signed poster of the Hubble Telescope by astronauts. And from now on, I'd like to be referred to as Galileo's girlfriend. <laughs> there you go. And I, I got to tell you, we are co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation. This is Star Talk. I am Neil deGrasse Tyson and Lynn Coplitz. We are signing off. Goodbye. This is Star Talk. Star Talk. Star Talk.